Amen. Thank you, Chris. Well, good morning again. Um, we have a couple of rows of folks at the back of the room that are very sleep deprived. They had a great time at the mix. Our teenagers really enjoyed that. Um, so uh, I'll try to be extra loud today for y'all's benefit. Um, if you have your Bible, you can turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, you can follow along with us on the screen. Either way is fine. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 today. Um, we're in a home stretch of a series on the spiritual gifts. We've been talking about this since the beginning of January. Um, we're going to wrap that up, I believe, next Sunday, Lord willing. And uh, we have learned that spiritual gifts are God-given abilities to do supernatural ministry for Jesus Christ. That's how we defined it at the beginning of the series. And so we also learned that every single one of us who is a believer, as a Christian, has one of these gifts. The scriptures tell us that each of us has at least one of these gifts, if not more than one. And we've been telling you that the goal of this series is for each of us to identify which of the spiritual gifts we have that the Holy Spirit's given us, and then to motivate us to want to use those gifts here in this local church for the glory of God. Now, if you're here this morning and uh, your commitment to Christ is somewhat open or unsettled, I'm glad that you came, but know that I'm not speaking directly to you today. What I hope will happen, though, as you hear about this, is that God would challenge you that you have a tremendous opportunity to recognize that God has a gift that he wants to impart to you if you would uh, give your life over to him. Maybe you've been working many years and uh, you've tried the world's way of finding satisfaction and success, and you've realized that's just really an empty hole. Uh, the things that you're trying to acquire, the things that you're trying to achieve, well, at the end of this life, when you're dead and you're gone, you can't take those things with you, and so it just seems like an empty pursuit. But God offers to those of us who are Christians this spiritual gift that we can use as an investment into eternity. Jesus himself even said that when we put these gifts into practice, and use them here for his glory on this world, that there will be rewards for us waiting in heaven. That's something he taught. And so if you're here this morning and you're not in a real and personal relationship with the Lord, my hope is that God would communicate to you that there is a whole different dimension of living that can be yours, and that God only wants one thing from you in order for you to have that. And that is, God wants you. That's what he wants. And when you give it to him, not only will he give you gifts for service, not only will he forgive you of your sins, not only will he give you a place in heaven, not only will he give you peace and joy in your life like you've never known, but he'll give you a purpose for your life. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, my hope is that God would challenge you this morning to consider giving your heart and your life to him. Our text comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's go ahead and flip over there. We're going to be reading verses 7 through 11. If you... Uh, would please stand to your feet for the reading of God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is a listing of the spiritual gifts, beginning at verse 7. Here we go. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Let's kind of walk into this together. Today we want to cover two gifts. The first of those gifts is the gift of discernment. In 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 10 it says, 
to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits. The King James Version translates that to discern between spirits, which is where we get this uh, title, the gift of discernment. The Greek word that's used there means to distinguish or to differentiate between things. And Paul is specific in saying that the person who has this gift can distinguish between or differentiate between spirits. So if you were to give a definition to this uh, idea of the gift of discernment, here's what our definition would be. It'd be a God-given ability to distinguish between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, between that which is from God and that which is not. Now, the Bible clearly teaches about the existence of a spirit world. The Bible talks about angels. The Bible talks about cherubim. The Bible talks about seraphim, these heavenly angels, uh, these heavenly beings, that, um, creatures. And the Bible also talks about demons, and it talks about fallen angels, and it talks about the arch enemy of Christ himself, that being Satan, the devil. You say, Gordon, you're an educated person. I mean, you've been to the higher institutes of learning. I mean, you don't really believe in this stuff, do you? Yes, absolutely I do. I believe in it because God's word says that this is real. Um, God, help us if we ever get so educated, friends, that we're not willing to believe everything that is written in God's word. I've heard many prominent pastors, even in recent years, say that you don't have to believe in the miracles of the Bible. I've heard many prominent pastors say that you don't have to believe in supernatural stuff that occurs in the Bible. All you need to believe is that a dead man raised back to life and sits at the right hand of God the Father in heaven waiting on you and I to die so we can go there too. Now, friends, if you can swallow that pill, I don't know why you can't swallow the rest of the pills that are in the Bible. Friends, we either take God at his word or we don't take it at all. Otherwise, you'll find yourself picking and choosing out of the Bible and you'll develop some sort of a grab bag religion, which is what we've got in many circles today. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 tells us, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So Satan and all of his cohorts, the Bible says, are very real. That's what the Bible tells us. But the Bible also teaches that they have a very particular strategy about how they go about their work. And their strategy that they try to employ is they don't just go out and deceive people openly. They don't just go out and deceive people uh, in a way that people can say, hey, you're trying to trick me here. What they do is that the Bible says he comes along as an angel of light. Uh, the, the demons come along as righteousness, the scriptures say, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 14, masquerading or disguising himself as an angel of light. Verse 15, Paul says, it's no surprise, therefore, that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. See, they go out, they're masquerading, they're trying to deceive people, but they do it in a very misleading way. Friends, for Christ, there is an antichrist. For sheep, there are wolves in sheep's clothing. For true prophets, there are false prophets. For the doctrine of righteousness and truth, 1 Timothy 4 and verse 11, there will be those who depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, and they'll never know that that's what's happening to them. And that's why 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but rather test the spirits. Put a test upon it to see whether or not those things are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, this desire to test the spirits to see whether or not something is from God is something for all of us as Christians to participate in. We should all be testing the things that we're hearing, the things that we're reading, the things that we're listening to. But people with the gift of discernment, 
have an uncanny ability, as we defined earlier, a Holy Spirit-given ability, to distinguish between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, between those things that come from God and those things that do not come from God. And they just are able to put their finger on it and say, you know what, something's coming at me right now that I can just tell is not from God. They can spot false teaching, they can pick it up in a book, they can hear it when it's coming forth in a sermon, and immediately they can detect that something is wrong here. And they see right through some phony teacher up front trying to lead people astray. They can even read right through phony Christians who are trying to put on an air and suggest that they are somebody that they really are not. Peter had this ability. Remember in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira came forward to Peter with their offerings to say, hey, we had just sold a bunch of land and we're bringing the full proceeds of everything that we had just sold forward to the church. And Peter said to them, Acts chapter 5 and verse 3, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Friends, Peter saw right through them. The apostle John had this ability. He wrote to Diob... I don't even want to pronounce that guy's name, but anyhow... Third uh, John chapter 1 and verse 9, he says that Dive, that guy, the D, the D name, loves to put himself first, Peter or John recognized. He says he walks around like he's something special, verse 10, talking wicked nonsense against us. Here's what else he does. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. And anybody else that tries to do that, he says, he wants to put them out of the church. So John recognizes here's a person who's not true to what he's claiming to be. There's a person who is a false prophet among you. The Apostle Paul had the same ability to differentiate truth from error. You remember how the Judaizers, a group of people who had said, hey, yeah, you know what, you've got to put your faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, but you've also got to do some religious works. Uh, just putting faith in Jesus and the work that Jesus did on the cross, it's not enough. We've got to do these religious activity. We've got to participate in this religious activity if we're ever going to get to heaven. And so Paul saw right through that, and so he precipitated the Jerusalem council, brought everybody together to, to resolve this doctrinal matter. Sometimes the issue is a phony life. Sometimes the issue is heretical teaching. But either way, people with the gift of discernment can smell a fake a mile away. They are like spiritual bloodhounds, if you would. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but these people you can't fool any of the time. They see right through it. The Spirit of God gives them special insight, special ability to see through what's going on in people's lives, to see the genuineness of their effort and the real motives behind their actions. And they may be able to put their they might not be able to put their finger on it at first, but sooner or later down the road, they're going to say, this is what's going on here. They know. The year was 1907. It was the 25th of April in London, England. And as people were on their way to work, uh, they were passed by what was called the City Temple Church. It was a prominent church in London at that time, in the 18, 18, leading 1800s leading up to 1907. Here's a picture of the City Temple Church. still stands today. It was bombed out, and then they rebuilt it. Um, and as people were on their way to work, um, Dr. Parker had been the pastor at this church for several decades, and he was a prominent pastor in London. A lot of people wanted to hear what Dr. Parker had to say. And on April 25th of 1907, as people were on their way to church, or on their way to work, they walk past the church, City Temple Church, this great historic building, and the word Ichabod was painted in red letters across the doors of this beautiful historic church. I mean, just drippy paint so everybody would see it, nobody would miss it. Now, the word Ichabod is a word that comes from the Old Testament, and it means that the glory is departed. The first time it occurs 
in the Old Testament is a lady by the name of Phineas, um, and she had just lost her husband, and she's just lost her father-in-law. She's feeling pretty low and pretty bad, and then she gets news that she's about ready to give birth, that the Ark of the Covenant has been stolen by the Philistines, that the Israelites don't even have the Ark of the Covenant anymore. And so as she goes ahead and gives birth, she names her son Ichabod, naming him the glory of the Lord has departed. On April 25th of 1907, um, the local papers reported about this vandalism, and the Scotland Yard came, and they did their little detective work, took fingerprints, whatever it was they did, took samples of the paint, and they tried to figure out what it was, but nobody could figure out who had done this, who had written the word Ichabod across the front doors of this church. And uh, several days later, a man came forward and he confessed to the police, and they went ahead and they put him on trial, and he was a local painter. And so they took him to court, and um, they asked him the question in court. They said, why did you do this? What, what, was your reason, what was your rationale? What was your motivation for doing this? And he said, well, Dr. Parker asked me to do it. Now, Dr. Parker was dead in 1907. So the judge is sitting there, and he's scratching his head thinking, oh, boy, I got a real nutcase on my hands, right? He's like, were you actually, were you, are you telling me you were talking to Dr. Parker? The guy said, no. He said, I sat for several decades in City Temple Church, and I heard Dr. Parker preach. And Dr. Parker said on many occasions that if ever, <clears throat> should it ever come to pass that the great truths of Christ's death and resurrection be denied by any future occupier of this pulpit, like if anybody comes along behind Dr. Parker as the pastor of that church, may the word Ichabod, the glory is departed, should be written over the doors of the city temple. And Dr. Parker is noted for having said this many times during the course of his years at City Temple Church. And so this painter said, there in the courtroom, he said, we have a new minister at our church. And he said he's very subtle and tearing down the inerrancy of Scripture. And he said he's being very subtle about, he said, most people haven't figured it out yet, about our need for repentance. He's, he, he's weakening uh, the, the, the weight of sin. He's watering down the blood of Christ. He's watering down salvation by faith. And he's doing it deceitfully, and he's doing it so subtly that most people haven't picked up on it yet. He said, but I've been listening, and I've only done what Dr. Parker insisted that we do. He said, so I got my brush out, and I went up early that morning, and I painted Ichabod over the front doors of that church. Now, he took Dr. Parker very literally, whether or not Dr. Parker meant it to be literally, he took him very literally, but most of the people in that church had not figured out yet what was taking place, what had been happening in that church over the course of that year. But here was a dear old man with a gift of discernment who could smell what was happening and had responded to it. Folks, not everything religious is the truth of God. Not everything that happens in church or that's taught in church comes from God. And so thank God for people with a gift of discernment who help protect God's word to keep the gospel pure. The second gift that we want to talk about today is the gift of administration. And this is also found in 1 Corinthians 12. You can flip back over there or follow along on the screen. It's not in the verses that we read. It pops up in verse 27 and 28. Let me read that for you. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. And in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having the gifts of healing, those able to help others, and then here it comes, and also those with the gifts of administration. 
the word that Paul uses there for administration, I've got it up here on the screen behind me. It's a Greek word, uh, kubernesis, which means uh, pilot or helmsman. And I don't know if you can see it in the picture there. It's a little tough to see, but I got a guy. He's on his sailboat, and he's hanging on to the wheel. Anybody can see the wheel. That's the point of the picture. He's hanging on the wheel of the sailboat, and uh, so he's, he's guiding that ship. He's piloting that ship. He's the helmsman of that sailing vessel. And so that's what Paul's trying to communicate here is that the person with the gift of administration keeps the ship on course. It's a person who steers a steady course just like the pilot of a ship would do. You tell the pilot, hey, look, we need to get from point A to point B, and we need to get there safely, we need to get there efficiently, and that's what the person with the gift of administration helps facilitate. Um, So if we were to think about this in terms of the definition, the gift of administration would be a person who is able to see objectives, point A to point B, to come up with a plan, and implement that plan and follow through with it in such a way to get the church from point A to point B. Now, a great example of a person with the gift of administration in the Scriptures is a guy by the name of David. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can flip back over to 1 Chronicles chapter 23. Um, in fact, there are some pew Bibles, or pew Bibles, there's some in the seats. All right, we don't have pews anymore, but there's some in the seats there, and you might flip through there and look at them. And I'm not, I'm not going to go to any verses particularly, but the headings of the chapters, you'll see what I'm talking about here, or you can just follow along with me. First Chronicles 23, um, David, um, he had just taken over a people, the people known as a people of Israel from King Saul, and they were people who were decimated. They were people who were uh, down in the dumps. They were defeated. They were divided. And so David had a goal to want to unify a plan, to want to unify this nation. Part one of his plan was to defeat the Philistines, which he did, and get the ark back. Part two of his plan uh, was for taking Jerusalem and making it the capital city of this na- nation of Israel, which he did. Part three of his plan was to take the nation and turn it into a kingdom. And here in First Chronicles chapter 23 is the first of David's, we see his administrative tools in action. It says, 1 Chronicles 23, that he took the Levites, if you're looking at those little chapter headings, he takes the Levites and he organizes them. And then if you flip to chapter 24, he takes the, the, uh, the priest and he organizes the priest. And then in chapter 25, it talks about how he takes the musicians who are going to serve in the temple and serve in the tabernacle, and he organizes them. In chapter 26, we learn that David organizes the gatekeepers, the people who are going to sit outside of the gate of the city and monitor who's coming in and who's coming out. Um, In chapter 27, it tells us about the organizing of the army into divisions and companies with commanders and controls. In chapter 27, it also tells us how he organized the royal storehouses, and he set out storehouses out out into the nation, further out into the nation, away from the capital city as well. He organized the people who oversaw the olive oil, and he organized the people who oversaw the sheep, and he organized the people who oversaw all the camel herds, and he got everything. Thank you. Somebody's listening today. All right, organize, right? Because that's what David did. He had this gift of administration. He was great at organizing things. The guy was an administrator. And finally, in chapter 28, it tells us that not only did he do all of that organizing, but he also organized everything that would be needed for the construction of the temple. Now, God had told David, David, you're not going to be the one that builds this tavern or this temple for me. Your son Solomon's going to be the one who does it. But David got all the blueprints together, got all the plans together for the construction of this, temp, uh, te- this temple, got all the materials together that would be used for it, so that when Solomon gets to be king and steps out of the scene, Solomon can immediately start building. Look at chapter 28 with me, 1 Chronicles 28 and verse 11. It says, Then David gave Solomon his son the plan 
for the vestibule of the temple and of its houses and of its treasuries and of its upper rooms and of its inner chambers and of the room for the mercy seat. Friends, that's the whole temple. David gave him the blueprint for everything that, that, that Solomon was going to need to build this thing. Verse 13, and he gave Solomon instructions for the division of the priests and the Levites and all the work of the service in the house of the Lord. Basically, he gave Solomon also a work schedule for the people who would, who would serve at this temple. Verse 14, David, again, this is all stuff he's leaving behind. David's not even going to be around to see any of this stuff implemented. But again, the guy was a planner. Verse 14, David designated the weight or the amount of gold that would go into the golden vessels for each of the services uh, and the weight of the silver vessels. Skip on down to verse 18. He also gave Solomon his plan for the golden chariot of the cherubim that spread their wings and covered the ark of the covenant of the Lord. He gave all of this, friends, to Solomon. Verse 19, and all this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord, all the work to be done according to the plans. David had written down all the plans that were going to be needed to build this wonderful facility of the temple. He collected all the raw materials, and so all Solomon had to do was show up with his construction crew and start it. That's the kind of guy that David was. David was not only a visionary leader, but he was also an excellent administrator. He knew how to take a mess and turn it into organized action. That's what people with the gift of administration do. He knew how to move things from point A to point B. Very often, God does not equip visionary leaders like David with the administrative skill set and vice versa. It does happen, but it is rare. You know, the administrator is the person with a spotless desk. That is not my desk. I have everybody walk by my office. I've been working on it lately, so it's a little better, but it's still a mess. Uh, but if you walk by our youth pastor's office, every pencil's in the right spot, there's no papers. I mean, even the trash has been emptied out. I mean, it's spotless, right? It's administrative mindset. Uh, the administrative person is the one who constantly saying to their visionary leader, that's a great idea, but I can't pay for that right now. That's a gr or that's a great idea, but have you thought about the long-term implications of making that decision? That's a great idea, but you're getting so far out ahead of everybody that you're leaving the rest of us behind. Nobody's going to be there by the time you arrive at point B with you. Administrators are not negative people. They are not sour grapes people. Please don't misunderstand me. Instead, they have a very realistic understanding of what it's going to take to, get, to arrive at that vision. They're a realistic type of a person. That's the way they think. And it follows that there is no ministry team, there is no staff member, there is nothing that happens in the church that does not need administrators to work alongside people who have great ideas, people who are visionary, uh, to make sure that those things get done uh, and they get done efficiently. I thank God for the people of administration that he's brought here to our church. I try to listen to them. I really do. Um, I've turned my ear to them. I bend my ear to them. I want to hear what they have to say. We need those people to balance out the rest of us who have ideas. Now, if you have the gift of administration, as soon as somebody says, hey, you know what, we ought to do this, your mind, immediately, the wheels start spinning. You think, okay, well, first we've got to do this, and then we've got to do this, and then we've got to put this in place, and then we need to have this out there waiting for us when we get to that point. And so your mind's thinking like that. I mean, if you think in terms of org charts, then you probably have the gift of administration. If you think in terms of performance reviews, then God bless you, right? It's great to have people like that here at our church. We need you. You are a gift from God to this church. God equipped you with that gift, that skill set, to be implemented, to be brought to bear here at our church. 
And every ministry in this church needs people like that <clears throat> to play a part. All right, well, I'd like to close out today by returning to the topic that I opened up at the beginning of the service, which was talking about our purpose in life. So just a few uh, quick thoughts here. Um, the racing world had a really bad scare a couple of weeks ago. I got a picture for you here. I don't know if anybody was watching the Daytona 500. I was sitting in my chair watching this race happen. I guess it was on Monday because I had to delay it from Sunday. And my daughter came in, and she was laying across the bed, and I was sitting in my chair, and we were watching the end of the race. I said, come here, come here. We're about ready, about ready to be done. And uh, this is Ryan Newman in midair, uh, car number six. He had just gotten hit by the car underneath of him, and this Ryan Newman had hit the wall, flipped up in the air, and landed on the front nose of the car that he's underneath of right now. And that car hit him upside down right in the driver's window. And I thought for sure he was dead. Now, he walked out of the hospital a couple of days later. Total miracle. There's no, there's no other explanation beside it. I mean, that car that hit him was going about 180 miles an hour, 190 miles an hour, and clocked him right in the driver's side window. And he, of course, flipped up in the air, finished in ninth place, by the way, skidded across the finish line in ninth place, but um, <clears throat> not exactly the finish that he was hoping for. Um, it, was, it was truly, it was, a, it was an amazing thing. Well, after the race was over, so immediately after the race was over, Denny Hamlin wins the race. Um, he comes from third place into, into first place by a nose um, and ends up winning the Daytona 500, I think, for the second year in a row. Can somebody correct me on that? Right? Okay. So I um, can't remember one year to that. Like, it's like, who won the Super Bowl a month ago? <laughs> Whatever. Um, but anyhow, so, so, hey, you know, that's where we live, right? And so, um, and so, uh, so, Denny Hamlin, he wins the race. He goes out onto the, onto the grass infield where they got the big Daytona 500 thing painted. He's out there doing donuts all around the field. His team's celebrating and, and pit crew's having a great time. And then they real, somebody told him, hey, look, we got a serious medical situation going on here. And of course, everybody kind of died down and they got criticized for, their, for celebrating. But I mean, they didn't know. Now, one of the things that stuck out in my mind as I was watching the end of this race, and I mean, we really didn't know. The announcers didn't know what was going on. They brought out these black screens and put them around uh, Ryan Newman's car, and you're thinking, There's, they're just pulling a body out. You know, th this guy's gone. Um, just nobody really knew what was going on. The TV camera pans over to team, uh, racing team Joe Gibbs, and there's Joe Gibbs. I don't know if anybody remembers seeing this or not. Joe Gibbs grabbed the pit crew of Denny Hamlin, circled them up, threw arms around one another, and Joe Gibbs led that group of people in a prayer. And they prayed for Ryan Newman. Um, you say, well, where did that come from? I mean, where did a guy like Joe Gibbs get that kind of a instinct to say, hey, look, we need, a, we need a focus here. We need to go to the Lord. Well, <clears throat> um, Joe Gibbs talks about how in his early coaching career, how he was driven for worldly success, and I quote, he said, as my coaching career took off, I bought right into the world's game plan. He said, I wanted to be a head football coach in my eyes. That would give me all the things like money and prestige that I wanted and thought I needed. One little uh, uh, factoid, I suppose, about Joe Gibbs is he's the only athlete to be in two Hall of Fames, two different sports. Anybody know what the other one was? NFL, yeah. He coached the Red Washington Redskins to three Super Bowl wins in the 90s. But he says, you know what, early in my career, this is kind of how I saw life. I saw coaching as an opportunity for me to acquire everything that the world had to offer. 
Well, Gibbs started attending Sunday school class, and a teacher there was a very unassuming Christian, humble man, and Gibbs soon realizes that this man had something that he wanted, namely, he had peace in his life. One night at church, Joe Gibbs came forward, and he prayed this prayer, and he says, and I quote, God, I've known you since I was nine years old, but I have not been living for you. He said, tonight, I want to rededicate and commit my life to you. Today, you'll still find Joe Gibbs in pit row overseeing racing teams. He's a very driven guy. But in addition to racing, you'll also find Joe Gibbs speaking at Christian businessmen conferences and at church conferences and at youth conferences. Back in the 90s, he was known for leading marches outside of Walter Reed Hospital against abortion clinics that were taking place there. He chose to leverage his popularity and to leverage his notoriety and success not to advance himself, not to, adv not to promote himself, but to advance the cause of Jesus Christ. You see, God had changed the heart of the man. And he realized that God had put gifts in his life, not so that Joe Gibbs could be elevated and glorified, but so that God could be glorified. My hope and my prayer for you, friends, is that God has shown you, look, I want for your life to count for eternal purposes. Take the gifts that he has put in you and use those for his glory. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to open up your word today, to hear your truth spoken into our lives, to be reminded that uh, this world is not all an end all, but that, Lord, there is so much more to live for. Lord, that you want our lives to count as a ripple effect into eternity, into our children, our grandchildren, into our communities for generations to come. Because, Lord, we chose not to promote ourselves. Rather, Lord, we chose to promote Lord, in these quiet moments as we gather around this table and participate in this meal, reminding us, Lord, of your shed blood and of your broken body, give us once again a vision and draw us to a place of commitment to place the things, Lord, which you have imparted to us, the talents you've given us, the gifts you've given us, completely into your service. We pray these things in Christ's holy name.